What is GDP? You know, we collectively believe that the stock market goes up, that's good, but it, but it's just, it's simply not true. Teachers are on strike again this morning to protest low wages and cuts in school funding. A new study says the number of uninsured children in the United States rose for the first time in nearly a decade. And I am thrilled to announce that the United States economy grew at the amazing rate of 4.1%. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. An honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. So, Nick, last episode, we learned how the middle class has essentially been getting screwed for the past 40 years. And, and I'm confused because when, when I look at all the economic statistics right now, things seem to be going great. I mean, the, we have near record uh, low unemployment. We have near record high corporate profits. What's going on? What are we measuring? Yeah, and I think that... Uh, you know, you raise one of the fundamental questions is, you know, like you get what you measure, essentially. And for a long time, since the 1940s or 1950s, we've measured the economy. We've measured growth, prosperity, uh, characterized welfare in some pretty funky ways. And I think a lot of those mistakes are, are coming home to roost today. Uh, that GDP, gross domestic product, as the fundamental measure of prosperity and economic growth being sort of the best example of where we went wrong. All right. So let's talk about what is GDP? So GDP is gross domestic product. It's basically the, you know, the monetary measure of the market value of all goods and services produced in the economy, like in a year or a month or whatever it is. So you basically add up uh, the value of everything you make and that's your GDP. And in, in some ways, that measure makes some sense. Although, to be clear, the people who invented GDP, uh, Simon Kuznets, among others, in the 40s, were very, very clear that it was a terrible measure of, you know, the overall welfare of right. the economy and, 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 and insisted that it shouldn't be used as the final full measure of the economy, but because it's so simple to measure and because it defines more as good <laughs> right. unambiguously, and because that way of measuring uh, unambiguously benefits a lot of people who make things, uh, we, you know, we locked onto it, and today it is, it is the foundational way in which we measure everything. But... Uh, as we'll learn from our guest, uh, Diane Coyle, later, it is a deeply uh, flawed measure of human welfare uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. So more is better if we have more cigarettes. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's good for GDP, right? Yeah. So for a bunch of different reasons, Goldie, uh, GDP, as uh, Robert Kennedy so beautifully explained so many years ago. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play, 
It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are American. GDP in aggregate can go up every year, but all the benefits of those increases can accrue to the top 5% of the people in the, in the society. Everybody else gets screwed, but the number still looks great. And so the problem you have in America is that people open up the newspaper every morning and it says GDP is going up. But reading that number is not how you experience uh, a better life, right? right? <laughs> and, and this is the difference between median and mean. Yes. Or, or average. GDP per capita is a measure of average GDP per family, per person. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the people in the middle are doing any better because you rich people just distort everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, um, Nick. You're welcome again. Uh, yeah. So it, it's a very inadequate measure in that primitive way. And there's another easy way to understand why it is inadequate, which is to think about in an economy in which people are consuming fewer things and more services, how you measure GDP on services. So primitive example is a society with fewer teachers per student, a better society based on GDP or a, a society with more teachers per student. Um, you know, how do you capture learning and, and the rate at which kids learn and who's learning in those statistics? It, well, you don't. And, and so standard productivity measures, standard GDP measures miss entirely uh, the, what, what's happening in the economy. Also, if you're measuring output, how do you measure the difference between the old computer that can't do very much uh, with the new computer that can do, right. do these fantastic it, transformational things. It's much better at measuring quantity than it is quality. quality. Exactly. And again, this is part of the problem. That's a rather subjective idea. It is. But to be clear, we live in a society as an advanced, relatively prosperous society where we are generally not so interested in quantity, but very interested in quality. Lots and lots of people have computers. The question is, how good are they? And are they improving um, quickly is a bigger issue than going from zero computers to a bunch of them, or zero cars in the society to almost everyone having one. Right. So not only is welfare uh, a subjective idea, it, it's also relative, right? Because we are these highly social, status-conscious creatures. We don't simply feel better because we're doing better. It also is related to how well we're doing compared to everybody else. Absolutely. And this is one of the most misunderstood parts about how we have characterized how we're doing, which is this idea which uh, is linked to the neoclassical idea of homo economicus, that we're all rational calculators of our self-interest. Um, you know, the, the idea that we judge our circumstances in relation to our communities. And there's a lot of people who think that people are just being envious and, 
and, and greedy when they say, well, I'm not doing very well compared to that person, and that's unfair. In, in fact, human societies are held together by these moral norms and reciprocity norms. And so what matters to us and what, what rightly matters to us is how we're doing in relation to others. And again, none of our current economic measures make sense of that. So when critics say that the poor have never had it so good, you know, look, they've got let them, eat, electricity let and, them eat iPhones. That's right. <laughs> but, well, and, and the funny thing is, of course, I can. Yes, you're right. A uh, cell phone, a smartphone is something that the richest pers- person in the world couldn't imagine of having 40 years ago, just 40 years ago. When we were growing up, they didn't exist. Yeah. But now you can't be a functional member of society without a cell phone. You can't get a job. You can't maintain a job. You can't keep your daily schedule together. This is as much a necessity as, as clothes and housing. Yes. And, and, but while, while poor people may be able to afford smartphones, what they can't afford are positional goods like housing and uh, high-quality education. And these are the things that define welfare in human societies. And so, again, none of these measures really relates to the lived experience of the typical family. The stock market at 25,000 is awesome for the few people in the country who own most of the stock, obviously, but uh, the median family actually doesn't have a stake really in the stock market. And when it goes up, not only doesn't it materially benefit them, it massively benefits a tiny minority of people who are living lives uh, that are less and less like theirs. (laughs) And so, you know, it's sort of this double whammy effect. I'm not getting ahead. And uh, my life is, on a relative basis, getting worse than these other people. And that, you know, that just appropriately makes people angry. Hi, how are you? Good. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. I'm Diane Coyle. I'm the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge in the UK and also the author of a book called GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History. The way we think about the economy now is always in terms of GDP, but it's got a very specific historical origin. It was created in its current form with the definitions that we use now in the period during and after the Second World War. Now, of course, people had been thinking about how to measure the economy as a whole before that, and there were efforts dating all the way back to the 17th century. Um, Most often, people refer to Simon Kuznets as the father of GDP. He had done some early work um, putting together aggregates of national income, as had somebody called Colin Clarkin in the UK doing very similar work. But there was a key difference between those pre-war efforts and what became GDP. And, and that difference is important because it's, it's come back to life now and it's one of the reasons people are not so happy anymore with using GDP. So what GDP does is it measures um, final demand in the economy. You add up all the different goods and services and uh, essentially it's what businesses do and what the government does. And including the government was one of the key differences between what Kuznets wanted to do and what uh, actually happened during the Second World War, because the wartime imperative was just to measure how much the economy could produce in in terms of fighting the war effort. And um, 
there was no way that the authorities were going to show that fighting the war effort was making people worse off. Something that Kuznets would have said, if you want a measure of how well off people are going to be, then uh, making bombs isn't making them better off. We should exclude that. That was not going to happen with a measure that was constructed during the Second World War. So that was, that was one key point. Another was that all the valuable activity people do in their home was not included in our definition of the economy. All the, the caring activities that go on, uh, cooking, uh, cleaning, um, are not raising, counted. Raising that. children. Raising children, because <laughs> they have no market price. Right. Um, you know, they're done for free. And so what governments and business do is the economy. What households do is not the economy. And there, too, is something that has um, ha- has sort of come back to bite us because it's not just that feminists like me think that is inappropriate. It's that actually policy gets shaped depending on these definitions. And um, the great increase in productivity in the decades after the Second World War, well, part of that was women not working in the home and going out to work in in paid employment and buying ready-made food and paying other people to do do their cleaning. All of that added to GDP. But it's not obvious that it led to um, being better off in some fundamental economic sense or, or good economic policies. And so the point is that GDP is a particular definition of how to think about the economy. And it was created in a particular set of circumstances that helped shape it the way it is now. So let's deconstruct it a little bit further. So one of the deficiencies of GDP is that it measures the economy in aggregate. So isn't it possible for GDP to be going up, but for the lives of people not to be tracking with that? I mean, it, me- it measures an average, not a median in a sense. That's right. I mean, it, it's even worse than that in a way, because the headline figures that we see, they are always total GDP, never in per capita terms. So if the population is growing, you'd really want to adjust that to being a per capita figure anyway. But it's also an average, so it tells you nothing about the distribution of uh, of income growth. And you'd get the same GDP figure if it were very unequal, as if it were much more evenly spread. And that can be across different kind of groups of the population, or it could be across different regions as well. Right. And many economies are very, are very regionally divided, and that obviously overlaps with people's incomes in terms of their, their skills or, or the kind of jobs that they have. Um, but these, you know, as you're alluding to with the question, have really played into electoral politics of late, haven't they? Because we know that the gain in GDP in more recent decades has been very unevenly distributed. So the other thing that's quite interesting about the evolution of this measure is its relationship to the changing nature of what our economy produces. Like counting up the number of cars, for instance, that the economy produces is quite a simple thing. But Mm. how do you account for the quality of care a nurse provides or uh, the, the skill of a teacher or services, or how, how do you account for um, the fact that the equipment that we are presently using uh, to do a podcast with you, us being in Seattle and you being in uh, England, cost a few hundred dollars, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is what it would have cost, you know, uh, 10 years ago if we had done this. Isn't that another part of the problem? 
Yeah, it's a great question, and it's my favourite question because a lot of my research now is about how we should be measuring things to catch up with how the economy has changed. Because as we were discussing, GDP was created for um, the economy of the 1950s. There was um, mass production, much less differentiation of products, uh, less of the economy in services. And so the character of economies like America and Britain has changed dramatically over time. And we have many more services like medical care, where the quality of the care and the way you even measure productivity is just not obvious how you'd measure that. And, you know, if you're talking about a nurse in your example, you don't measure productivity by how quickly they can get through all their patients. It's the quality of the care that fundamentally matters. Or a management consultant, you don't measure their productivity by the number of pages in the report. The quality of what they say is, is what matters about it. Can you uh, tease out for us a little bit the relationship between how we think about productivity and GDP? Yeah. And um, as you probably know, the background to this is that productivity performance has been disappointing around all the rich Western economies since the financial crisis. And it's called the productivity puzzle because uh, nobody's quite sure why it happened. And at the same time, you see these fantastic technical gains in some parts of the economy. And um, GDP is is the, the, the numerator in productivity calculations. Productivity is, is really, broadly speaking, given the resources that you put in, labor, capital, uh, any intangible capital that you can think of, um, what are you getting out for those for a given amount of resources? And the easy way to calculate it is just looking at GDP adjusted for inflation divided by the number of hours worked in the economy. Uh, a more sophisticated one called total factor productivity adds in the other factors as well, the capital and, and so on, or adjusts the different uh, uh, skill levels in the labor force. And the, the idea is that you try to explain as much as you can in, of output in terms of what's going in, and anything that's left over is um, the, due to technological progress, due, due to how we apply ideas to the resources that we have, essentially. A great example is um, aspirin, which is an old medication and has been used for, as a painkiller for a long time. And then at some point, the same um, formulation, somebody realized that you could use that to, um, uh, as a preemptive medicine against cardiovascular disease. So nothing changed in terms right. of resources, but the output was uh, uh, very much improved. And that's a total factor productivity gain, a technology gain. Hmm. And so it's about the power of ideas, fundamentally. Hmm. So just in my own life, one of my recent investments was in a company doing immunotherapy uh, for cancer, which has found a way to take some cells out of somebody's body that has stage four terminal cancer, re-engineer them, stick them back in the body. And, uh, you know, in 95% in, in of the cases, the people are cancer-free. And what's striking about that is that, for a few tens of thousands of dollars, you can essentially cure someone of a disease that presently costs literally millions of dollars to treat in the current system the other way. Mm. And so it's, it's just this really stark example of a circumstance in which people's lives are immeasurably improved, <laughs> but giant amounts of economic activity is destroyed in the process. 
and and so in aggregate gdp is going down so if you looked at the figures you would be like oh yeah, because the amount sold in, in, in the medical pharma market has gone down. Gone down by a factor of 100 or 1,000. Yeah. It's such an interesting example of the of the conflict between, or the inconsistency, I'm not sure what the word is exactly, between what's good for people and how we measure whether the economy is improving our lives. It's a great example. and. As the economy changes, there, there are more and more examples of these because there are such exciting developments in technology. But there's actually quite a fundamental split among economists about this at the moment. There is a group of economists, Robert Gordon at, Chicago, at Northwestern is one of the most prominent, saying the innovations we have now are overhyped and they're no, never going to improve economic well-being in the way that the innovations of the 1920s and 30s did. So he's talking about things like the spread of electrification or the spread of indoor plumbing in people's houses, the introduction of, um, of uh, automobiles and so on. And then there's another group of economists who point out, as you do, and I'm in this category, that there are things that we are just not measuring because they Correct. don't fit into the conceptual framework that we have right. at present. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a chasm. And... Um, we haven't got to the bottom of this yet. Yeah. So a lot of my work is trying to think about what other frameworks we might want to apply that would better reflect the kinds of things that you're describing. So what other frameworks might we uh, apply? What would be a better alternative to GDP? I have two ideas in mind. One is that rather than thinking about monetary transactions, we think about what assets do people have access to to lead the kind of lives that they want to, and then what they do with them is up to them. Is up to them. And the assets would include um, the financial capital and the physical capital they can access. You know, can they? Is there good infrastructure? Um, uh, what kinds of equipment do they have in their in their job? Um, but also natural capital and uh, social capital, so the quality of the institutions and the communities in which they live, which we know has important economic effects. And so you would then ask what assets do people access and the distribution is an inherent part of that framework and what's attractive about thinking about assets a kind of balance sheet for the economy is that you then automatically think about sustainability and we never do that with gdp it's only about today's consumption and today's income and so if there is a natural disaster that's great for gdp because of the construction that happens and we don't account for the loss of the assets that it causes and the other way to think about it, in my mind, is to think about um, how people spend their time and what value they get out of spending their time. So I think your immunotherapy example might fit into that because it's a big extension of the time available to somebody. And um, we do have, we're starting to have some insight into uh, the value that people place on different kinds of activities. And this is something that's also being changed dramatically by digital technology because the pattern of how people spend their time is being changed in some quite fundamental ways. Hmm. Fascinating. So one of the uh, interesting things that the people listening to this podcast might appreciate is you, your advice to non-economists and lay people about how they should incorporate these new ideas in their lives, in their in their personal and public lives? 
That's a really interesting question. Um, in, as, as you were referring to earlier, people do know what's been happening in some sense. They do know that yeah. their incomes haven't gone up or that the job opportunities for their kids or, or the possibility of buying a house to live in are not what, not what they used to be. So people understand that very well in, in their personal lives. My sense is that a lot of policymakers do understand that, um, but kind of feel trapped in the GDP story. And I've talked to politicians who say, we'd love to stop talking about the quarterly increase in GDP, because we know this is meaningless. And they go up and down all the time. You can't read anything into a quarter. It doesn't tell you anything fundamental. But what can we do? Because that's what the statisticians publish. Yes. And if we try to do something else, our opponents are just going to say, well, that's only because you can't deliver. And then you talk to the statisticians and they say, well, we can't change because this is an international standard that's set <laughs> by a United Nations body. It takes 20 years to change it. And besides, this is what the politicians want. We're just giving them what they want. And the journalists report what the statisticians do, and they want to hold the politicians to account. So they're all trapped in this GDP standard. But I think it's very interesting that the interest in, in measurement has become so intense. Who would have thought that anybody is interested in economic statistics? But there's been probably a dozen books about this published for a general audience in the past um, three or four years. And you go, I, I go to literary festivals to talk about my book. <laughs> 300 pensioners turn up on a wet Sunday morning to hear me talk about GDP. It's just bizarre. So this is, but it suggests that there's an opportunity to try and break out of, break out of the trap. Yes. And um, I hope there are a lot of economists now working on this. And I hope that uh, between the ideas from the economics community and engagement with the statistics community and, and having a public debate about it, we somehow get some shift away from the tyranny of the quarterly GDP number. Yeah. And, you know, for my own part, I think what understanding the weaknesses of this approach to measuring human welfare is is useful for is that it gives me confidence and I hope it gives the public confidence that pushing back against orthodoxy is not an irrational act <laughs> and that despite the fact that we do not have agreement about what a perfect alternative to GDP is it does not follow that we should allow the economic orthodoxies and policies based on GDP to terrorize us. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that knowing that these figures are inadequate gives you social, political, and sort of psychological permission to call into question the policy frameworks that depend on it. And I think that yes. I, I think that that is very, very powerful and useful in in civic society. Uh, I mean, the state the state of the world now, we know, as you say, that something isn't working. And um, one of the reasons that it's, it's great to have people pushing back in this way is that for a long time, GDP was part of the furniture and nobody paid much attention to it. When I was young, um, as an undergraduate student studying economics, you were taught some of the basics of national income accounting and um, the kinds of judgments that went into constructing the figures. And then that dropped off the curriculum. So younger economists don't think about it, they just download the statistics from the internet because that's so easy now and run regressions. And so having um, this debate and this pushback, I think is really healthy. Yeah, it's fantastic. Are you working on any new books? 
I'm writing a textbook which is based on a public policy economics course that I teach. Oh, fun. And I'm hoping that will be out in 2019. And then after that, I'm already planning the book about all of these measurement questions, which are really, it's really a book about what makes us better off and how do we know it. I love it. I love it. Well, we can't wait to read that one. Give me time to write it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think this has been a fantastic conversation, super useful, and uh, we, we just want to thank you again for taking the time to uh, chat with us. Okay, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye, Diane. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So we're measuring the economy wrong. Great. Perfect. Who wouldn't want to hear that you've been doing something wrong for 50-plus years? Hi, my name's Sarah Leibovitz, and I'm a producer here at Pitchfork. I've got to admit that part of me is like, so what? It'll be such a pain fixing the entire economic system. And how can you know that it's actually worth it? That switching something that seems both as complicated and as seemingly unimportant as metrics will really make a difference? Well, as weird as it may sound coming from a wonky podcast about economics... Let's take a look at baseball. From Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, this is Chuck Thompson along with Jack Quinlan welcoming you to the seventh and deciding game of the 1960 World Series between the New York Yankees and If the you're an American, you probably know at least the basics of how baseball works. People hit things, they run around some other things, do it enough times and you win. But behind those basics is a way, way more complex system. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. You might remember this movie if you're a baseball aficionado or just really like Brad Pitt. It's called Moneyball, and it's based on a true story. And that story changed what is essentially the backbone of baseball. How you build your team and why. This wasn't a long time ago. If you're a baseball fan, you might remember these changes. In 2003, Michael Lewis published the book that the movie's named for, Moneyball. In it, he argued that the conventional wisdom baseball insiders like scouts and captains and managers followed was wrong. That these supposed experts were using flawed metrics, and because of that, they were getting shoddy results. As you might imagine, those insiders hated Moneyball. Because, as Michael Lewis said on PBS, it proved them wrong. That in a, something as hoary and traditional as baseball, it was possible for there to be innovation and new knowledge. They rethought everything from on-field strategies, which you do during a baseball game, th to the valuation of, of baseball players. I mean, th they have taken... To create the best team possible, the metrics used to evaluate baseball players had to change. And when teams changed those metrics, they saw results. And he said this to me. A couple of economists in the, in the I think it's the, the, the Journal of Econometrics, published a study about the value of the price of on-base percentage before Moneyball and after Moneyball. It changed dramatically. It was undervalued before, and it was actually overvalued afterwards. The market for players became more efficient. Baseball figured it out. Teams added statisticians. Things changed because it was proven that you could win more games by doing so. So, 
if we can change baseball after doing it the same way for over a hundred years, why not the economy? We can keep holding on to GDP because it's comfortable and already here. Or we can evolve, can welcome new forms of measurement and redefine the game for everybody. So, you know, today, uh, because we have all persuaded ourselves that the stock market going up is uh, an unalloyed good, we have uh, done a lot of stuff in policy to make that happen. Uh, the, the best example being uh, stock buybacks. They used to be illegal, now they're legal. And so the, in this year, essentially 5% of GDP will be devoted, 55, 60% of corporate profits will be devoted to stock buybacks that do nothing for the broad economy, in no way touch the lives of most Americans, but absolutely make the stock market go up. And so, you know, we collectively believe that the stock market goes up, that's good, but, it, but it's just, it's simply not true. Right. So, so at one level, Nick, it seems that this is all really simple. We should be measuring what matters, which is improving people's lives. So what actually uh, improves people's lives? Uh, well, peanut butter and chocolate ice cream improves people's lives. Uh, antibiotics improves people's lives. Okay. Uh, I just got a co really cool new electric bike. And I think that's going to improve my life. I hope as much as that that standing treadmill <laughs> desk to my left that I haven't used very much. Yeah. So what improves people's lives, what increases living standards um, in a billion forms are technological innovations that solve human problems, that that that's really what makes lives improve over time is going from uh, sweltering in the heat to air conditioning, walking uh, to work versus riding a bike, riding a bus, dying from a head cold to getting antibiotics and being fine, right? It is the evolution of solutions to human problems that defines progress in human societies. And the more solutions to human problems we create and the more widely we distribute those solutions to human problems, the better human societies are. And I think, Nick, that if people listening to that answer come away a little dissatisfied because we haven't given you a uh, an alternative to GDP, well, I want you to just wait, tune in next week, because we're going to talk about how you actually get more solutions. Yep. And the answer is complexity. That's right. It's a complex world out there. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Music